Bitcoin, crypto bubbles, passive indexation. There's a lot of financial jargon out there. Old Mutual can help you make sense of it all and give you great advice to make the right decisions. If you've got a question or want to know how to get the most out of your money, call them on 0860 60 60 60 or speak to an Old Mutual financial advisor or your broker. Today's the day. Get great financial advice so you can do great things. Old Mutual is a licensed financial services provider. The Talk Station. And now, The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield. The Money Show brought to you by Old Mutual, a licensed financial services provider. Today's the day. Get great financial advice. Do great things. Well, on The Money Show tonight, what will Nasbat do with the spoils as it trims its stake in China's 10 cent? It'll net about 150 billion rand in the process. It puts pressure on management to make better returns than they would have out of 10 cent over the next year and beyond. Markets around the globe weaken amidst fears of a trade war if Donald Trump adds massive levies to Chinese imports as he's threatening to do. And as U.S. interest rates rise, your frequently asked question tonight is whether or not it will affect the Reserve Bank's decision here next week. We're doing scenarios with Clem Sunter just after seven. Warren Ingram looking at what you might do if you're lucky enough to have a meaty inheritance. And Pablo Fatidis on small business. All of that tonight on The Money Show. But first, your latest Eyewitness News brought to you by PPS Short-Term Insurance. Car, home and business cover for the graduate professional. Protect your assets safeguard your future. Things. Welcome to The Money Show. Four out of every ten shares traded on the JSE today were Nasparts. It was an absolutely enormous day as the company announced that it would be reducing its stake in China's 10 cent. I paid $33 million 15 years ago for a stake in 10 cents. That stake today is worth about 2 trillion rand. And they've announced that they will be selling down just 2% of those shares. So taking from 33 down to 31% their stake in 10 cents. That'll net them 150 billion rand. What are they going to do with that money? Philip Short standing by for us in Cape Town. He's an investment analyst at Old Mutual Equities and he understands Nasbert very, very well indeed. Uh, Your frequently asked question, lots of you saying, oh, hold on a second. The Americans are raising rates again. They've been playing chicken with rates for so long, and they're likely to raise rates twice more this year. What is going to happen to interest rates on uh, in South Africa as we head towards what has to be a rate cut next week? I don't see how the Reserve Bank will justify not cutting interest rates next week. The question will simply be 25 or 50 basis points. Plus then, Clem Sunter, I'm looking forward to chatting to him. It's been a while. Um, and Clem Sunter with scenario planning and looking at the various scenarios facing South Africa for the years ahead. Um, he's got fabulous and fascinating views. Then Warren with uh, what to do with an inheritance and Pablo Fatidis on small business this evening. All of that is coming up on tonight's Money Show. The Money Show. The Money Show. With Bruce Whitfield. Fast fact question this evening as you head towards Friday and uh, the Brutal Biz quiz tomorrow. And this is a nice warm-up round. Which chief executive has secured a 10-year, potentially $2.6 billion pay deal? Which chief executive has secured themselves a 10-year, $2.6 billion pay deal? That is your fast fact question on 31702 and 31567. If you think you know the answer, send us a, a reply on 31702, 31567. Who has secured themselves a very juicy $2.6 billion pay deal? And they won't get a single month's salary in that time. All of that uh, coming up in just a couple of minutes. Show on Cape Talk, your number one news and talk station.
As I mentioned a moment ago, Nasbar selling down its stake in Tencent. Currently, about 33% shareholding in Tencent, one of the world's fastest growing internet businesses, and it's uh, listed in Hong Kong. It had results out yesterday that looked pretty good on the surface, but the market was concerned about the short-term future of Tencent. And we saw that share price come down in value in uh, in Hong Kong this morning. That then uh, fed into the JSE. Well, Nasbar, remember, paid $33 million for that share in Tencent in 2000. And that stake today worth more than 2 trillion rand, worth more than even the entire value of Nasbar's today. Philip Short, investment analyst at Old Mutual Equities. It was only a question of time uh, before Nasbar's had to find a way to begin to exit some of those uh, that exposure to Tencent, Philip. Yeah, I, I mean, on the whole, I don't think they're in a rush to to sell um, um, more. Well, they said they'd only be they'd be tired. They won't sell any more for at least a three-year period. Um, they've commented in the past on how they still see tremendous growth available to uh, uh, for ten cent. So I think this was actually more just to provide a, a bit of uh, cash for Naspers to for them to spend in areas where they think they can. Um, get a, a greater return, obviously, than what's sitting with uh, with uh, ten cent. Uh, now, a bit of cash in Nasdaq's terms is 150 billion rand, 11 yeah. b- 11 billion dollars. It's more than a bit of cash. Uh, it could keep South Africa running for for two months um, on the on the current budget. Um, what what is 150 billion rand worth to in Nasdaq's terms? There was a a great little calculation on BusinessInsider.co.za today. They said it's enough to buy Capitec and Telcom and still have change, but they're not in the market to do that. They've got other plans for it. Yeah, I think it actually, I mean, to show you the, the, how small it is in their lives, it's only uh, about 4%, 3 or 4% of their market cap, of NASPAS's market cap. So uh, the nominal number is pretty big, but as you say, I mean, their market cap at the moment is 1.5 trillion rand. Um, it's not that big uh, in, in, in their lives. However, it is big in terms of what they can do with it. As you introduce them, they uh, turned $33 million uh, into greater than 1.5 trillion rand. So with them, if they can do, if they can find something else, or maybe not to that scale, but if they can find another great couple of investments uh, with that $10 billion, they can do some, some amazing uh, investments. Uh, and they have to be amazing investments because their problem now is that if they, they've been seeing these massive returns and I think Tencent grew its profits last year by 74%, um, they've got to find some really high growth returning assets um, in order to justify selling down that stake in Tencent. Because you can't say on the one hand, we love this company, we see long-term value in it, then sell some of the shares and then make a smaller return on your new investments for the foreseeable future. No, that's true. I mean, so let's, I mean, just to take a step back, I mean, they're not. Uh, I don't think they would ever expect to find another ten cent. So, they they need to find a good investment. They don't need to find another ten cent because that's, that's uh, you know, it's, it's it's very unlikely. And I don't think they're going out thinking we have to find another ten cent. They just need to find another business that's going to give them, as you say, a greater return from today going forward than what ten cent would give them today going forward. Mm. So that's, I mean, ten cent that's already grown. Multiples and multiples and multiples today. I mean, let's say for such a big company, and if you still see such good growth from it, let's say it doubles its profits in three years. That's a 25% um, sort of IRR, annualized return, um, over the three years. And NASPERS' current uh, IRR 
uh, in intent assets investments since 2008 is about 23%. So if they can find something that's a little bit higher than their current rate of return on their portfolio, then they would, that would have justified um, them selling a little bit of and what are internet assets going for in the world? I mean, we, we saw, of course, the, the, the dot-com boom and bust that happened um, at, the, at the turn of the century, 1999 into 2000. And valuations around the world seem pretty elevated right now. You look at the sort of prices that Facebook has paid for internet businesses in recent years, um, and you wonder what sort of multiples Naspas is going to have to buy to get quality businesses into its portfolio. Yeah, I, mean, I think so. Just first to say that, that one shouldn't draw uh, um, any inferences from the dot-com to now. The, I mean, the, the, the amount of cash that the current uh, tech companies, Facebook, Tencent, and all these companies, what they generate, they generate a much higher cash conversion than the majority of all other companies and other sectors, uh, tobacco, uh, beer, uh, brewers, etc. They, they're much better businesses, uh, so they, they generate hard cash. Um, and then multiples, yeah, I think, I think the mar- maybe the market as a whole is a little bit elevated. Um, but when you are, let's say, for example, if uh, you've now sold a bit of Tencent, uh, which is trading on a 44 times multiple, um, and if, let's say, there's another, NASPAS itself is trading, I think, at a 29 times multiple. So if you're buying something that's similarly related to NASPAS, that's an immediate earnings accretion, you know, going from a, selling a 44 times a multiple business and buying into a 29 times multiple business. So, yeah, I think the market as a whole is a little bit elevated, um, but I think NASPAs are shown with the returns that they've invested in the internet, um, even X Tencent, um, they've been, you know, they don't consistently well to provide double-digit growth or returns at least. Why then were NASPAS shares down so sharply on the day? There was almost this expectation that there's no way that NASPAS management can do better than, than Tencent management with the spoils of this particular transaction. Um, like I said, it's, it's the base. So from here, it's going to be very hard for Tencent to, to, to you know, grow at the same rate as it has in the past. So NASPAS can take that money and put it in another smaller business, uh, smaller business relative to ten cents, which it would make it a lot easier for you to double or triple your money in a short period of time. Um, so yeah, I mean th- th- that's the and they've, and they've got the track record to to show that they can do that. So, I mean, like I said, X ten cent, the, the internet are has been twenty three percent in dollars. Uh, and then the, the pressure on uh, you know, investors have been piling pressure on NASPAS for quite some time to make a plan with this big stake in in, in Tencent, which is a, makes NASPAS a, a disproportionate uh, player in terms of the index on the JSC, 20% of the overall market. NASPAS sneezes and the rest of the market gets hospitalized. Um, is there going to be further pressure on NASPAS to come up with innovative ways of reducing its stake? Um, I think the, the pressure will always be there. Um, so more pressure, I doubt there could, be, there could be more pressure than what there currently is. I mean, they have been under a lot of pressure from certain corners of the market. Um, but the, I mean, you, when you speak to them, you'll see that they're constantly looking for, for new areas of growth. I mean, they really see themselves as a growth company. Um, they, they're very proud of their um, return record. So I think they put themselves under as much pressure as what shareholders um, put on them. Philip Schultz, thank you. Great insight this evening. Investment analyst at Old Mutual Equities. And uh, we put a pitch in for the chief executive of NASPAS to join us on the next Money Show. So looking forward to that discussion tomorrow. What are they going to do with the 1.5 billion rand that is going to be released as a result of a sale of just 2%?
2%. Just 2% of the mighty 10 cent. Uh, a fast back question this evening. Which chief executive has secured a 10-year, $2.6 billion pay deal? 31702-31567. You've got a couple of minutes to come through with an answer. Kids. Well, tonight's market commentator, Rudy van Marva, is with us and uh, looking forward to catching up with him on the markets uh, today. The JSE lost more than a 1,000 points, led down by Nasbert. Rudy van Marva is a portfolio manager at AdviceWorks on The Money Show this evening. Uh, the big disproportionate nature of Nasbert, they've moved to trickle down their stake in 10 cents. It's not going to change the fundamentals and the dynamics of the JSE very much at all, is it? No, Bruce, good evening. No, I don't think it will. You know, this is, it is to some extent something that the market has been, been asking for for a while, you know, for them to, to try and narrow the discount at which they trade to their, their underlying value, uh, which is quite substantial. It's, it's around sort of 40% odd, uh, discount to, to the underlying shares that they, they own in, in 10 cent. And this is one of the ways that they can do that. You know, they've proved that, that it is a saleable asset. Uh, you know, for example, if they went to use a portion of this to, to actually buy back Nasdaq shares on the market, that would probably have, have, have a quite a significant impact on on reducing that discount uh, at which the shares currently trade. Um, there, there's some commentary on my SMS line this evening that shareholders are disappointed that they're not going to get an immediate benefit um, from the sale of these 10 cent shares. Many shareholders would have liked to see stakes in 10 cent unbundled to them or given to them on a plate, um, uh, handed over. They would have liked to have seen that happen rather than a 150 billion rand placed in the hands of management to go spend on what may or may not be growth businesses. Well, that's true, Bruce, and uh, obviously that's the easiest way for them to to directly reduce or, or eliminate that discount would be to to entirely unbundle the the ten cent stake. Uh, management obviously believes that they are able to over time add further value by by doing other acquisitions, and they've actually been very good at that. Obviously, ten cent totally. Um, outshines anything else that they've done because of the enormous gains they've seen there. But they, they have a lot of other very successful investments and, and of, obviously of the belief that they can continue to make high-quality uh, other uh, investments in, in the technology arena. So, yeah, it, I mean, it's going to be a point of contestation. I don't think that they're going to or that they're likely to at any stage entirely unbundle that stake. Uh, but over time, they could very well reduce it. And, and they seem to be at this stage keen to continue investing in, in some of the existing businesses, but you know, in, in the arena of artificial intelligence and uh, smart retail and fintech and that sort of thing. Breaking story this evening, of course, the White House uh, taking steps to restrict Chinese investment in the United States and to put tariffs on $50 billion worth of Chinese imports uh, for the Americans say the Chinese stealing technology. So this is a tit for tat there. And we've seen the Dow, the S&P 500 fall about two percentage points this evening. Very, very fast and precipitous drop. Uh, it is concerning, Bruce. I mean, nobody, nobody wins in a trade war, uh, and, and they're, they're talking about concerns about Chinese intellectual property uh, or respect for Chinese respect for, for U.S. intellectual property. And you know, I don't know why they, they don't rather try and negotiate something there rather than than, than uh, the route they're taking at the moment. Uh, if, if this turns into a tit for tat situation, uh, global trade could suffer, and, and, and global consumers will be the first to suffer uh, f- from rising tariffs. Uh, the other impact has been, obviously, the, the U.S. interest rates that were hiked by about 25 basis points, and, and there's talk of or indications that we're probably going to see another two hikes 
uh, in in this year and, and just concerns that uh, higher interest rates obviously makes funding more difficult to come by and, and specific sectors like retail, for example, and housing and uh, property in general are, are all somewhat vulnerable to, to, to further rate hikes. Yeah, but that's the one concern. And, of course, we're going to talk about it a bit later, what happens for the South African Reserve Bank when it comes to South African interest rates, which are high relative to other rates around the world. Tell me about retail sales numbers that came out. December's numbers were so good, but they were artificially inflated probably uh, by the huge boost that we saw on Black Friday, and that uh, helped drive sales toward the end of last year. Suddenly we get to January and sales are up, but by, by nearly the same sort of very attractive margins as they were in December. Yeah, quite right, Bruce. Uh, I think in November we had retail sales up about 5.7%. Uh, December was very strong, and then I think January we were up 3-odd percent. And I think a lot of that was just upfronting of by the Black Friday rush uh, in late November. Um, so yeah, I don't think it's well a massive, massive concern. Uh, we are going to have to watch very carefully what happens to retail sales from here as as the VAT increase comes through. Uh, you know that that may have a further impact. We might see in the next month that some some spending uh, is is sort of preempted. You know, that people people bring forward some spending plans to try and avoid uh, the, the increase in VAT. Uh, and we, and we, that's we a, a, a that becomes a short term little boost to economic growth. And I mean, lots of people were holding off on spending because of political uncertainty towards the end of last year. Then they've got this money sitting in the bank, and there's a bit of uh, confidence coming into the South African economy. Plus, then there's the risk of uh, well, there's the reality that VAT is going up and suddenly your washing machine which might have cost you 1,140 rand suddenly costs you 1,150 rand and you choose to pay the lower price before the 31st of March rather than pay the higher price after the uh, the 1st of April. Yeah, that's quite right. Uh, A very short-term impact that's likely to have but uh, nonetheless we, we, we could see some sort of impact uh, just, just heading up to that increase. Um, you know, the other, the other Issues to watch just at the moment. Obviously, you know, we've got an announcement from Moody's tomorrow on our credit rating, and, and we're clearly very hopeful that we're going to be able to avoid a downgrade again for now, but it, it is still possible that they, that they do it's, downgrade us. It's possible, but cheapest. if they downgrade us now, it's massively churlish. I mean, surely that, Rudy. I mean, there, there were a thousand other good times, good opportunities <laughs> to downgrade us last year when the environment was far more complicated and far less certain. We certainly don't have certainty. We certainly don't have certainty uh, right now, but we do have a lot less uncertainty, and um, it, it would be pretty backward of Moody's to downgrade us at this point, surely. I would have thought there's a lot of positive steps that have been taken, and uh, you know they, they should at least give us a, a another stay of execution, you know, a, a, a take a wait and see approach, and and see if we we walk the talk uh, over the next while, uh, which would be positive. I think uh, you know some of that's already priced into the market. It seems to be the general expectation just at the moment that we'll be able to avoid it. In which case, the chances are also quite good that we could start seeing domestic interest rates coming down from from next week. Yeah, and I mean, as much as 50 basis points, I'm putting my money there for now. I think our, our, our rates are far too high, Bruce. Uh, yeah, I, I wouldn't be surprised, and I think 50 basis points it would be entirely rational. Uh, our consumers That's the nicest it. thing you've ever said to me. <laughs> <laughs> Rudy Fanamadra, thank you very much indeed. Rudy Fanamadra is a portfolio manager at AdviceWorks. Thank you very much for coming through for us this evening. Rudy Fanamadra, I asked you earlier uh, in our fast fact which chief executive has secured a 10 year 
$2.6 billion pay deal. And I said, no money will change hands. And somebody took the bait and says, ah, it's Chris Becker. Chris Becker's uh, no pay, paycheck story is historical. And he's cashing a lot of Nasbar shares. Nobody's ever managed to figure out exactly how much he earned other than uh, Chris himself, I suspect. Uh, but Chris Becker also is the chairman of Nasbar nowadays. So, no, that answer isn't correct. But you're on the right track in terms of technologists around the world. Um, and probably the world's greatest technologist at the moment is Elon Musk. Tesla shareholders approving a compensation package potentially worth $2.6 billion for the South African-born inventor. Now, he'll receive no salary or cash bonus, but those rewards do depend on the market value of Tesla rising to as much as $650 billion over the next 10 years. If it hits that sort of threshold, then Elon Musk is dollars in. Uh, American pay experts say the $2.6 billion deal is unprecedented and sets what they're calling a new high watermark for an individual executive equity award at a U.S. public company. So this is Elon Musk, born in South Africa, starting businesses in the United States. And just out of Tesla, he could get a $2.6 billion payout and cheap at the price relative to the valuation that shareholders are expecting will be achieved because he's being incentivized so heavily to make it. But yeah, it's a game-changing paycheck for a game-changer in the United States economy. Coming up on the next Money Show, we're keeping an eye on the Moody's decision on the country's sovereign credit rating. A lot rides on this one. National Treasury confident that we'll uh, dodge junk. We'll see whether or not we do. Plus, uh, new developments from Nasper still on our radar. We've invited the chief executive of uh, South Africa's fastest growing company to join us on the next Money Show. Plus, of course, the brutal biz quiz because it's Friday. Would you support the creation of a single currency on the continent? Would it be the rand? Would it be the dollar? Would it be, as Tito Mboweni suggested, the afro as in response to the euro? Looking at the eurozone and how well uh, Germany has done relative to Greece since the introduction of the euro, you do have to wonder what shock absorbers weaker economies would have in a single currency environment. Certainly, President Cyril Ramaphosa has said he supports the creation of a single currency. It can't happen in isolation, though. It really can't. Delegates at the African Union Summit uh, this week have also supported a free trade area. Charlie Robertson is the global chief economist at Renaissance Capital on the line to us from London. Do you see this as a great African opportunity, Charlie? I think the trade deal is an interesting opportunity um, and it's going to be advantageous to those countries that are further along the kind of industrialization curve, like South Africa, for example. Um, The currency idea that we're much more skeptical about. Um, and we're seeing, we've, we've been talking about regional currency unions in, in West Africa. Um, that's been an equal-ass single currency, which has been planned for a good number of years already, keeps on being delayed, uh, and we think it's going to get delayed again. Uh, there's one due in 2020, but they're not ready for it. Um, and there's talk of a single currency in East Africa as well. So there's a lot of talk on the single currencies, um, let alone, certainly not yet a, a full-blown entire continental wide one Um, but the trade deal that seems better um, and more realistic we'll talk about the trade deal in just a second when it comes to single currencies what are the complexities um that cause these delays the uh i mean i'm a brit 
So you've got to take everything I say with a pinch of salt. We didn't we didn't join the single currency, as you know, in Europe. We're not even allowed to stay in the EU at all, um, thanks to the referendum vote. So we're a bit more sceptical on these things, but I do think they work where countries are pretty well aligned. So you've got a, a West African uh, currency union already within the CFA region. This is the, pegged to the what was the French franc and is now the euro. Um, and for, for the eight countries in that, that, that works well. They're all similar levels of development, uh, all quite small manufacturing sectors, all exporting quite a, a bit in the way of primary commodities, um, and that's tended to work. But it wouldn't work, is our view, if you add in a, a giant like Nigeria with its, its oil dependency, or a country like Ghana, which is we think going to industrialize much quicker, the quicker than the rest, because the human capital is so much higher. I think it's something I've talked about on your show before. The, the literacy rate and education rates in, in some countries in Africa is now so high that, that we can see them industrialized. But most of West Africa is not yet ready for that. But let's say we, we went uh, on a step-by-step process where we got SADC countries to adopt a, a southern currency. We got uh, West African countries to operate, to operate a West African currency and East African countries to operate an East African currency. Would that be a step toward possible currency integration? Or is it something that is, frankly, too much of a pipe dream to be taken seriously? It, it looks... It looks complicated and like an extra layer of work um, that, and, and, and effort on the part of bureaucrats and everybody else that I'm not sure where the advantage is. Um, you've got safety valves right now. South Africa had the safety valve in that week round in, in 15, 2015, 2016. That, that has helped South Africa not go into the recession that, say, Russia saw or Brazil saw when commodity prices crashed. Um, that safety valve doesn't need to be quite the same for other countries in the region. Yes, probably for Zambia, exports commodities just very similar way to SA. Um, but, but I think it would be you know, different if you were to broaden SADC to, to include some of the oil exporting countries like Angola, for example. Um, where the countries are similar, yes, it could, could be done. But I'm not sure where the need or the necessity is right now. Okay, so then let's talk about a, a, a trade deal that would allow uh, duty-free trade across African borders, for example, and preferential trade access for African to African trade uh, trading partners. That, you would agree, makes complete sense. Well, there's going to be arguments against it. Again, I, I come from my UK background sure. and, and the UK supported free trade for the best part of 200 years. So uh, I am you know, going to have a, an inherent national bias here. Um, but I think that the free trade zones in East Africa, West Africa, or SADC, all of these have been quite good. If, if I, and not least because they also make it easier for foreign direct investors to feel that they're part of a bigger market. You invest in Kenya, it's not just 40 million people, it's, it's more like 140 million people in, in the East African community. Um, so you're getting access to much larger markets, therefore you're more likely to get the, the foreign direct investment coming in once human capital is high enough and, and once electricity is there. Um, those are the essentials to get your, your manufacturing base anyway. So I think the trade story has been helping and working. And the data we, we showed in investors this morning was the intra-African trade was about 7% of all African trade in 1990. It's now at 20%. Sure. So I think 
these regional trade deals have helped. Uh, they have. And but the, the, here's the, the other issue is we often assume that when politicians go off and have big meetings and sign uh, reams of documents that by next week suddenly the world is different. These things do tend to take an awful lot of planning, of rules and regulations, of a massive bureaucracy to support them and an extraordinary amount of time to, to bed these things all down. Yeah, all true. And we are not changing a single one of our forecasts for any country um, on the back of the trade deal that was uh, assigned yesterday. Um, It's going to take years. As yet, the African Union hasn't even published what was agreed and what has been signed up to. Um, So, you know, we're certainly not in a position to be changing forecasts yet. But over decades, this is going to be helpful. Um, And the African Union has got some pretty bullish numbers on on a lift to to exports of over 50%, um, boosting African, intra-African trade as a result of this trade area. So long-term, helpful. Charlie Robertson, thank you. Global Chief Economist at Renaissance Capital on the line to us from London with his UK biases, of course. Britain never signed up to the single currency and, of course, is in the process of extricating itself now from the European Union. And there are good reasons for it, why Britain, people in Britain felt the way they did when 52% of them voted to exit the European Union and 48% voted to stay. I think that result might be different if it was rerun today and Britain may find itself remaining within the European Union. Whether or not that happens, of course, uh, remains to be seen. But for now, um, don't make the assumption that things are going to change dramatically, that your company is going to be able to easily do cross-border deals in a way that wasn't possible last week. Things likely to remain as they are for quite some time. The Money Show. FAQs. Frequently asked questions on a Thursday night and we judge from the flows of SMSs and tweets and emails into my inbox what it is that is getting you going and getting you concerned. Uh, Tonight it would be flooding in Johannesburg. Uh, Warnings tonight on the SMS line. Flooding under the bridge by Main Road and Nelmapius in Irene. Serious delays around Pretoria. Thank you for that. And any other stories we need to be aware of as a result of the heavy rains that have been coming down for days now in Joburg um, and are likely to persist in into the weekend causing untold problems for many of you um, do keep them coming through on 31702 and 31567 Ron says cryptos are going to make single currencies irrelevant um, possibly Ron but by when I suppose is the big question but I'll frequently ask question this evening how will the US Fed's raising of interest rates affect our own rates decision next week Kevin Ling, Stanlib economist on the line to us from rainy Johannesburg I hope you're standing on a chair or at least wearing gumboots uh, this evening uh, Kevin Lings um, the rates decision by the US Fed entirely predictable and there could be more to come this year, does it affect the way Lesitja Khanyaho and his monetary policy committee uh, think about our rates next week Evening Bruce, uh, I think it does, it certainly is one of the factors that the Reserve Bank uh, will take into account. Um, And obviously they'll look at how the markets react to actual interest rate hikes from the U.S. They'll know that there's an expectation that they'll have an expectation that the U.S. is going to hike rates further. And I guess the concern is that as you start to narrow the gap or as you continue to narrow the gap in interest rates between South Africa and the United States, you are making South Africa more vulnerable to changes in foreign capital flows. It doesn't mean that if we cut interest rates and the U.S. hikes interest rates, that suddenly a whole lot of money is going to leave South Africa. 
But what it does mean is that as you narrow that gap more and more, you're increasing the vulnerability. And that vulnerability would be that South Africa can't attract as much foreign investment or even that you start to see some money that's easier leaving the country. And the consequence of that would obviously then be some currency weakness, some potential inflation, and therefore you start to undermine your own inflation target. So the Reserve Bank has to be mindful that if they do cut too much while the U.S. is hiking, they run the risk that at some point it becomes counterproductive. But that's not a reason for them to not cut next week. I mean, that seems like a slam dunk if ever there was one in monetary policy terms. I would agree with that. If, you, if there was ever a chance to cut, this is one of the good chances, uh, especially if Moody's does leave us alone tomorrow night when they come up with the uh, when they announce their credit review of South Africa. So if they leave our credit rating unchanged, inflation has definitely surprised on the downside. The rand is still strong. The economy is quite weak. I thought the retail sales to numbers today weren't all that good. So there's every reason to cut interest rates. Obviously, the U.S. did hike and expected to hike, but I don't think that's enough of a factor uh, to, to stop them cutting, let's say, a quarter percent. Obviously, if they were to become a lot more aggressive and embark on, a, let's say, a 50 basis points cut and it was followed up by another 50 basis points, then, yes, they would be starting to run the risk. Uh, that capital flows could change on the back of that. But I think right now there's definitely a window of opportunity to, to cut at least a quarter percent. Now, it's not the Reserve, Bank, uh, Reserve Bank's job to mitigate the consequences of higher tax rates. And as of the 1st of April, everybody in South Africa is going to be paying a higher level of tax, whether you like it or not. And most people will be touched um, by the hike in uh, the VAT rate from 14 to 15 percent. Will that be a factor in the Reserve Bank's thinking in terms of the outlook for the economy? If they can cut rates quite aggressively, say by 50 basis points next week, that may mitigate some of the impact in the short term and, and stop this little Ramaphosa recovery from, from coming off the rails um, if, they, if they give us a, a slightly more adventurous interest rate cut to, to mitigate some of the downside of higher VAT? Yeah, I think it is a factor. Um, obviously, the Reserve Bank's main mandate is still inflation, so you would still argue the primary focus is keep inflation under control. But they do pay attention to what's happening to the growth dynamic in the economy and therefore employment. Uh, obviously, the, the tax hikes are effectively contractionary on the economy. They're going to hurt economic growth. And therefore, you can make an argument uh, that the Reserve Bank could try and offset that if possible. In other words, if inflation is still under control, it would be an argument to try and offset that from a growth perspective and in effect try and neutralize some of that. Because the main reason is that the, that the government is not increasing taxes as a concerted fiscal policy to slow down the economy. So you're not undermining really the fiscal policy. Government's increasing taxes because they need the money. So it would be, it would be an argument for them to cut interest rates while taxes are going up. The other factor they've just got to be aware of is that VAT, putting up VAT in itself increases the inflation rate. 
And so that can add comfortably half a percent to the inflation rate over the period of a year. So it's not something they can simply say, well, there's no doubt that we've got to cut rates because it will help to offset the VAT increase. There is an inflation consequence. The other factor I think they'll just be mindful of is that there is, there is a slight buildup of confidence developing in South Africa with some of the political developments. And it wouldn't be a bad thing if the Reserve Bank could add to that confidence. And a cutting interest rates, while it's not going to provide huge stimulus, and I don't think a whole lot of people are going to go out and buy houses and cars, it would add a little bit of a confidence boost, and it would certainly relieve some of the pressure on the consumer. So when you balance all of those factors, I think there's a solid argument then for, to cut, uh, for them to cut rates at least a quarter percent, and possibly even signal that uh, further rate cuts off are possible if inflation remains under control. There we go. Kevin Links, thank you very much. The Standlib Economist on the line to us from Rainy Joburg. Welcome to The Money Show on this uh, on this glorious, wet, soaking wet and a beautiful, uh, beautiful Thursday evening in Johannesburg. Uh, the Money Show is brought to you by Old Mutual, a licensed financial services provider. Today's the day. Get great financial advice. Do great things. Still to come up on The Money Show, we've got Warren Ingram with personal finance and he's got some thoughts on what to do with a big inheritance as uh, somebody's inherited some money and wants to take it offshore and is thinking of investing in these property companies that say, Oh, we've got this beautiful virgin land that's about to be developed and you can buy this land and you get it really cheaply and then it'll be turned into commercial land or into residential property at some point in the future. But there are no building plans. There's no real approval in some of these things. I'm highly skeptical of it as an asset class. So Warren can, uh, can tell me how wrong I am in just a bit. Tim Sunter standing by and Pavlo at half past seven. The Money Show on Cape Talk. Your number one news and talk station. Well, for the better part of three decades, the scenario planner Clem Sunter has been encouraging South Africans to think differently about the future. Rather than seeing the future with absolute certainty and clarity, which you simply can't do, Clem has taught us all about scenarios, and his latest scenarios are as thought-provoking as ever. He joins us this evening from Cape Town, scenario planner with the mind of a fox. Mr. Sunter, high road, low road, or is the road under construction? Well, the the road is under construction, and as I say in my latest article, uh, Bruce, uh, you know we, we've we've all got to get together behind Cyril uh, to to really get back to the high road because the failure of economic growth over the last uh, five or six years has really, you know, in terms of the diagram that we produced in 1986 as a scenario team of the high road and low road. We're really at the moment skirting the low road. Uh, yeah, we were we were headed down the, the 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 side road in December, and there was a very good chance that we could lose the road altogether. It was a very close run thing in December, um, and since December, confidence has uh, been restored somewhat. We've seen um, South Africans get a sense of pride back in their step, uh, and we've seen some pretty good and positive political changes happening, and some good administrative changes happening. But there are these flags, and you like to talk. About of flags, you want of red flags and of green flags, and you say green flags are better than red. And of the six that you're telling us to watch right now, on top of your list is the corruption flag. Yeah, and 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 you know the reason is very simple: is that we don't have the money anymore. Um, we we we're, we're junk status, and therefore we're in a very tough position. And therefore, Cyril has really got to draw a line in the sand on this because. You know, it's not like we were 10 or 20 years ago when there was money 
to be taken by corruption. Yeah, uh, when, you, when you run out of other people's money, P.W. Boerter ran out of other people's money, um, which brought about the end of the apartheid state. Um, South Africa has got to be very careful that if we do um, dig any deeper than we have right now, that the ANC finds itself running out of money, and then it's got a real problem on its hands. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I think that Cyril's very intent on, on, on doing just this. And so, you know, when you have a flag, you, you just watch it. 24 hours a day, every day. And, you know, I believe that over the next few months, you're going to see action taken to get rid of, uh, you know, the people who were part of previous corruption and possibly bring them to court. Um, and, and so, yeah, I'm, I'm very positive on that flag at the moment. And, and that flag's also highly dependent on action being seen to be taken, rather than, yes, we've got the charges now against pre- uh, former President Jacob Zuma, but, but the, the courts have got to be seen to do their work as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. This has got to be like uh, any country uh, where... You know, as in America or the UK, that um, the, the the justice system is quite independent of the government and will pursue charges. Yeah. Um, uh, the greatest indictment of our modern democracy probably is the failure to transform education into uh, and creating a new generation of highly empowered, highly skilled, highly ambitious young South Africans. Education has failed yet more generations. Yeah. Uh, you know, and back in '86, when we designed the high road, low road scenarios, Bruce, we made the number one characteristic of a winning nation the quality of its education system. And I think at the time we quoted Japan and Singapore and a few other countries that really, you know, have gone up the world rankings because they put so much emphasis on education. And, you know, we've put the money into education. We've just got to to manage education better. And and one of the really ironic things is that Zimbabwe probably at this moment has a better education system for the, for the mass of its population than we do because we simply don't have enough uh, accountability in our schools. Yeah. Uh, leadership style is something we've touched on with Cyril Ramaphosa and the slowly, slowly, suddenly approach. The focus on excellence, and we, we, we've lost confidence in ourselves over at least the last decade, possibly longer. Do we get confidence coming back? Yeah, I do think so. And, you know, it, it is ironic as as I showed in the, the, the chart that accompanied the article, was that, um, you know, we are more divided now than we've been at any time since 1994. So we do need inclusive leadership. It's not that we can't have differences of opinion on economics and all the other things, but you've just got to feel part of the same team. And, I, 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 you know, knowing Cyril, I think that he, he actually can practice inclusive leadership. But, Again, it's a flag that we've got to watch over the next two or three months. And few flags as important as the economy in the short, the medium and the long term. We've got to be seen to creating an inclusive economy, an economy that provides hope for more people than it has done over the last 20, 25, 20, 25 years, or certainly the last 350 years, but particularly over the last uh, decade, uh, two and a half decades. If we don't get an inclusive economy, well, what the hell's the point? Well, exactly. And, you know, it was interesting. I was at a school this afternoon uh, where we're teaching this program, Growing Foxes, and they, uh, you know, were asked to criticize the article. And the one point that was made was that perhaps we started down uh, the low road with the the actual settlement in uh, 1994, that we didn't 
really um, do anything about the, the hard issues, one of which was the exclusive economy and the second of which was land. And, and therefore, the seeds were already being uh, sown uh, by the fact that we kicked those two huge issues into touch and they have to be addressed. So it'll be a key element of Cyril's leadership to create this more inclusive economy and to handle the issue of land. It'll be dreadful if Moody's downgrades us tomorrow because of the uncertainties around land reform, because it is precisely the issue of land reform which creates the greatest uncertainties. If we, at least if we're putting it on the table to address the issue of land reform, um, that, to my mind, would be a good enough reason for a pass from Moody's tomorrow? Yeah. You know, it is, it is an issue that everybody's talking about. So, as, as, as um, I say in the article, it is the one issue that can you know, cause, at worst-case scenario, a civil war in this country. So it's got to be handled with great care. And so these four months are absolutely critical in reaching consensus on how we're going to handle this particular problem. But the one point which, again, was made by young people at the school was it's not just about uh, the, the, the land. It's about the environment. It's about the shortage of water. It's about the future of agriculture in this country. And more importantly, it's also about urban areas and what we have to do to rezone uh, land in our urban areas so that people have greater access uh, to work. So it's a huge issue, and it must be more than just changing farm ownership. What, what grade school were you at today? Because these kids sound brilliant. Well, they, they are. It was actually Somerset College, uh, which is which is mm. where I live, and 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 they were absolutely brilliant um, in terms of their criticisms. List. And the one point that they made, which which really attracted me, was they said that line that you have in terms of getting back to the high road, which, as somebody said, shouldn't be really called the the the, the sort of new dawn. It should be called the new deal. As, as, as in the case of the 1930s and, and Roosevelt, that the, the, the solutions we had when we drew up this chart in the 1980s and the solutions now will be completely different because the world is so different technologically and in every other way. So we've really got to sit down and work out what this new deal will be, which allows for an inclusive economy. It's not just a raw capitalist deal. It's got to address the issue of economic freedom, and it's got to address the issue of land. Clem Santa, as always, wonderful to have you on the program. Thank you. Scenario Planner with the mind of a fox. The Money Show. Personal Finance. (laughs) I do like your letters, and thank you for your letters. I got one this evening from somebody called Julie. Not Julie's real name, of course, because Julie's got secrets. Um, Her secret is that she's inherited some money and is wanting some guidance from Warren as to how best to utilize that money. I'll read you part of the email that she sent us. Uh, I recently inherited some money and immediately paid off our bond. We've got no other debt. Put some money, six months' salary, into a money market account as an emergency fund, and I'm left with about 1.2 million rand to invest. Good problem to have, Julie. I'm a stay-at-home mom. I'm 44 years old. The only other asset I own is a 50% share in a two-bedroom apartment in Bryanston, which I also inherited. 
I don't want to be related to you, Julie, because it sounds like you're bumping off your relatives, but that's okay. Uh, I would like to take the balance of 1.2 million invest offshore, if possible, and property is something that I can understand as opposed to stock markets. I thought that owning property in the UK was not an option with the amount of money that I have, but no, not to mention the practicalities of finding a property and managing it here from South Africa. The attached options give me a possibility, and she goes into uh, these various options. One is this pre-development strategic land in the UK that I mentioned earlier, and the other is student accommodation, service units, commercial suites, residential apartments. Now, you get quite a lot of these schemes that are run by different entities and different companies, and generally you find these things sold by people outside Woolworths. They go and say, set up a table, and they set up a very impressive stand, and they wait for you to come to them and say, could I really own a little piece of land in the United Kingdom? It sounds like a great idea. Is it, Warren Ingram? You know, my my massive love for residential property just in general um, um, is, is not there really. And and so now what happens is you add uh, a totally different continent, uh, you know, a long flight away in a totally different regulatory environment um, and, and a, a cost base that you don't understand. And I think all you're doing is you're adding massive layers of complexity to, to an already difficult investment decision. So, so I'm, I'm not a fan. And, and you know, the, I, I mean, we're obviously not going to go into the names of these things, but, but I looked at the first one, uh, just, you know, and, and their projection is uh, 22% return per year over six years. So, so that gets you to, tripling your money in a period of six years. Now, now just to give you a context, you know, in, in a place like the UK where interest rates are incredibly low uh, and you can get mortgages uh, that basically are interest only. In other words, you don't even have to pay off the capital. You just have to keep paying off the interest uh, or, you know, 30 or 40 year mortgages, uh, you know, to, to buy a property there uh, is incredibly expensive because they've, they've just with the, the structure of the way that they've, they've got mortgages there, uh, you know, property prices have gone through the roof. Mm. So, so, so there is a massive demand for for property and and especially residential property from UK residents and and people that are very familiar with that market, which which is why I get very suspicious. And I don't mean to. Uh, and uh, this is from a point of personal prejudice and ignorance rather than uh, the, the knowing these schemes in depth. But my simple logic tells me that if there were these great deals to be had, then British people would be taking up these deals and there would be no need for these people to set up the exactly. tables outside Woolies in order to sell this sort of high, my, in my view, high risk investment. Exactly. So, so anything in the, in, in, a, in the UK terms that with their inflation rates that are extremely low, that says we can give you 300% in six years. That, that, that just let me tell you straight off, that's too good to be true. That's the very definition you always talk about. Well, you could get 300% in six years if the little piece of land that you buy, the special um, strategic land, pre-development strategic land, Britain is going through a house building phase. Prime Minister Theresa May, there's a housing shortage. There will be tracts of land that will be developed. The question is, are you buying the piece of land that is going to be developed on? And if you do, um, are you going to have to put extra money in to help the development of that land in order to participate in that uh, massive growth, which you are sort of being indicated is possible because that's all it is. Um, It's a possibility, not a certainty. Be so very careful. Yeah, exactly. And 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 to to my mind, uh, you know, if you look at a lot of the South African property funds, just just 
so professional property investors in this country managing South African property funds deciding to go overseas and they go in a huge way why because South Africans love property we love offshore property we've got a really checkered history with it um, and I, I, I'll never forget a fund called the Glanmore Property Fund the Glanmore Property Glanmore Fund property. is that embedded on your soul it's Im- embedded in my soul because it got so in- incredibly heavily sold in this country and then the financial crisis hit and that fund got frozen and i think i mean i i'll speak from complete ignorance but i think it's still frozen if i'm if i'm not mistaken and and so i think our affinity for for property um, makes us natural buyers of unfortunately not high quality assets look at the property companies that have gone overseas you know they're buying eastern european shopping centers etc cetera, etc cetera, because you know south africans are experts on eastern european shopping centers and who are they buying them from let me tell you they're buying them from european very large property fund managers who've made fantastic returns out of the money and are now selling it at a massive profit because they think it's going to go down. And then we go and we buy them. Uh, that's a very cynical view. I mean, if last year, you, last week you had bought Hammerson, for example, which has been hammered lower, and then there was an offer from a French property company for Hammerson, and that sent the, the share price scuttling upwards 30%, you would have made 30% on Hammerson. Uh, but that would have been luck rather than skill. There's no, there's no skill. Then, and, and, and the point is you're, you're not forecasting anything. You're not forecasting anything. But there are some great property assets in the United Kingdom. Intu um, owns some fantastic shopping centers, um, some of the best shopping centers in the United Kingdom are owned by Intu, which is part of the old Liberty International. But with Brexit coming, we saw massive sell-offs in, in those particular property assets, which have got big levels of debt in them as well. So we're telling you what not to do. All right. What must Julie do with this 1.2 million rand that she wants to take offshore? Because so far, Julie is thinking, the worst thing I have done this week is to send Bruce and Warren an email. <laughs> so, so I think there, there, there are a couple of steps here. One, Julie's 100% right to think about investing offshore now. Why? Because the rand is particularly strong. And, and I think relative to the pound, the pound is pretty weak. So, so from that point of view, to capitalize on, on, um, on one dynamic, which is getting rands into, into another currency, now is a good time. And it does bug me that she's got a, a big property waiting already. So, so I think you know she's got a paid-off house and she's got a, a half-sharing apartment in, in, in South Africa already, but now she wants to buy more property. So, so I think you know, diversifying out of South Africa, that's good. Uh, why, why the fixation on property specifically? I think you know, saying it's, a, it's a comfort thing. She believes she understands property better than she understands shares. What you've got to understand, Julie, is a property in a piece of land in the UK that may or may not be developed in the next 10 years is very different to your 50% share in a flat in Bryanston. Exactly. And it's something here that you know the regulatory environment already, you know how it works, and you can go and, you can go and, and actually eyeball the property and understand what's going on. To me, I would be going over there and looking at property companies that already exist. So you mentioned, I mean, and that's a South African link, the the, the N2, but but go and look at at property companies that trade over there. Or if you really like property, go and choose a generic, you know, I'm I'm saying generic from the point of view that it's not some structure that's just being sold to South Africans, but a generic property fund that's been operating in in, in that country, in the UK, for many years, and go and just buy a property unit trust or or a a well-developed, well-managed property company that's been trading in the UK market for, for years, and then go and invest alongside the people that understand that regulatory environment don't go from here the the reason why these things are being sold here is because of our ignorance of what's going on there because of our ignorance of how these development laws work and and, and redeveloping and getting things rezoned there you know I I mean I think to use Cape Town as an example how many uh, Joburgers when they try and buy a house in the southern suburbs and then knock down some uh, walls and windows etc etc they get caught with the heritage council people that that, that want to preserve those properties and if you've got any kind of experience like that multiply that by a thousand 
thousand, and that's what happens <laughs> in the UK. What about Chess? I mean, uh, she's uh, she wants to avoid shares, but in I mean, your book and many other books and every other book on investing talks about the long term positive growth effect of growth effect of buying shares. Um, markets may be expensive right now, but over a period of time, history teaches us that shares deliver positive returns over longer periods of time. If you buy them and you hold them and they, you don't have to go and paint the roof ever or worry about the eaves or wonder whether or not the tenants are paying the rent. Or the agent's giving you all their rent. Or the rent. agent is, 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 t- is sucking 15% uh, out of your, your income stream um, b- before you even so, begin to smell the cash. So, so to me, that's really going to become the solution. Is If you really have a fixation on, on, on property, then look at property companies. If you're not and, you, and you're happy to diversify, then my view is go overseas, buy an international ETF, buy an international um, global Unit trust, and I think at the moment, you know, I mean, I have a, a love for for index investing, but definitely with the international markets because they're expensive, I wouldn't I wouldn't mind splitting my money half into an index and half into a, a fund where you're paying a fund manager to buy companies that are not super expensive right now, and the combination of the two, if you've as you said, take some time, you know, you've got a ten or twelve year period, you, you, you will make money out of that. So, so to me, I think it's it's a good idea to do that. If you can, what you do is send all your money out in one shot because I think the rand is strong now. And then when the money's on the other side, switch it into your into your equity funds over, let's say, three batches every two months. Just just spread it out um, a little bit over time because I am worried that that the markets over there are really volatile. We just need Trump to to antagonize you know China with, with some well, kind of he's, sanctions. He's, he started it this evening and, and raising tariffs uh, on Chinese goods oh, and services. Okay, there we go. He's done it. He's done, done it. it. So, um, or, or about to do it. He's taking the first steps towards doing it. It could be ours, yeah. And and, and then we'll see the Chinese reaction. And so, so we might see some, some real volatility in the markets in the days ahead so that's why you want to spread that purchase out over time but but please avoid making a huge concentrated bet on one little property that's a farm today and might possibly one day be an apartment in 10 years time it just feels far too risky to me warren ingram personal financial advisor at galileo capital to debt or not to debt that is the question I mean, if you in your personal life have got lots of debt, you understand that it keeps you awake at night. You understand that you worry about the future. You understand that you've got to go, well, how am I ever going to save money for the future if I've got lots of debt? What about your business, your small business? When is it appropriate to borrow money to run your small business? You, you may have bootstrapped in the beginning and run your credit cards and borrowed money from friends, fools and family. You may have done all of those things and paid them back. But now you need to grow your business and you need to borrow money somehow, raise money somehow, raise capital. It could be 100, it could be 150, it could be 200 or 500 or even 1,000 or even a million rand. Whatever the amount, when is it good to have some debt? When is it good to stretch yourself? And what is good and what is bad debt in a small business context? Uh, Pablo Fatiz, the founder and chief executive of Auric Business Accelerator, the debt lurgy, if you like. And nobody, I mean, debt is so debilitating and destructive and soul wrenching and dispiriting, um, but can be useful. It can be very, very useful. You know, Bruce, I think a business should always have let's call it, its relationships in place for opportunities that may come along or opportunities that were unexpected and that type of thing. You, you need to have good relationships in place. And a debt relationship is an important relationship because debt, if you can get access to it, you can get access to it very, very quickly if you have a reputation, if you have a relationship with a debt provider. But a lot of 
business people I speak to, especially post-2008, 2009, 2010, are not keen on debt. Their businesses are doing well. Their businesses are growing. They see opportunities to raise funding. Hesitant to raise debt, though. Very hesitant to raise debt. Explain the difference between funding and debt. So let's let's say this funding and financing because funding and financing are forms of money used in the business. Funding you typically are going to use to grow your business significantly. You're going to have a comprehensive plan. You're going to require a large chunk of cash, some of which might be used in plant, in equipment, in working capital, in people, in flights, in marketing, etc., etc. It's normally a collection of activities. Financing is used mostly on very specific assets. So you might look to raise finance to acquire new vehicles or plant and equipment, etc. and so forth. But both of them can either be found in a debt instrument or an equity instrument. And debt and equity are the forms of funding or financing. Explain the two differences there. So equity equity is where you give up shares in your business. And for giving up those shares, you, you in effect are selling shares to a funder. Somebody who says, I'm interested in supporting the growth in your business or I'm interested in backing you. It's what people do on Dragon's Den and Shark Tank. I, I want 10% of your company and I'll give you a million for 10%. And that's where the negotiation begins. Yeah, normally it's around, I want 80% of your company. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, very much so. It's where you give away equity. Um, and debt is where you actually go and borrow money and you borrow it against specific terms and conditions, normally with an asset behind it or collateral behind it. I promise to pay you back at a rate of 10, 15% a year, um, and I will pay you back within five years. There's the term of the term of the loan. Um, and uh, so I'll pay you 10% or 15% interest a year. Your capital will be returned to you in five years, and off you go. Now, there are advantages and no doubt disadvantages to both forms of raising money to help you grow your business. Completely. And the first thing you should really consider is the life stage of your business. You know, this idea, and I hear it so often, and it gets propounded out there by government and by media and by everyone who has never raised debt, quite honestly, where they say, become an entrepreneur. Firstly, that in itself is a huge statement from someone who's never been an entrepreneur. We had such a wonderful discussion <laughs> with Auntie Pai, the economist, the other day, who, who described the great hoax uh, of South Africans being told become an entrepreneur. Completely. Because it's so flippin' hard to do. Completely, completely. And in many ways, you know, it, it very often sells false hope, and it's a way of appeasing. In fact, I've often said to a number of my colleagues, in very much... Very, I think there was a communist statement that said religion is the opiate of the masses. That was Karl Marx, yeah. That was Karl Marx, yeah. I think in many ways, in many ways, when you have no answers, ready answers for young people, you say, become an entrepreneur. It's, you know, start well, it, it, it takes the responsibility away from me as the state and puts it on your shoulders. Because if so. I say become an entrepreneur, you, you decide to take mm. the bait and go for it. And you fail. Well, it's not my fault. Mm. You failed, not me. Very, very much so. So, so the early stages of, of becoming an entrepreneur – by definition, you're going to be stretched for funding because starting a business without any funding whatsoever and getting to a point where you can get things going, yeah, that's if you are a natural deal maker. You'll be able to get that opportunity brought to, to the table for yourself. But Bruce, this notion of raising debt to start a business is completely fallacious. So the right way to – and the reason for it is this. You raise the debt 
But immediately once you've raised the debt, you've got to start paying back the, the capital and interest portion of that debt. But I need the money to spend on building the business. Now you want me to use the money I've borrowed from you to pay it back to you with interest. But nobody's willing to buy my idea. So nobody's willing to take equity in my business because they think my idea is mad. I know my idea will work because it's my great idea and I'm going to build my business. But nobody's prepared to take equity, so I have to go and borrow the money. Um, so let, and, me, let me, and, and, and I won't get it from the bank, so I might go to a small business development corporation of some description or the bank of mum and dad if I'm lucky enough to have it or the friends or the fools and agree to pay them back in the form of interest itself. Yeah, point. but it also depends where you started from. So let's say, for example, you know, this morning on Business Accelerators, I profiled a business made up of five professionals. I think the average age of these individuals must be early to mid-40s. All of them have got corporate careers. All of them went and built reputations for delivery. delivery. All of them are well-educated technically in their fields. They're all in the chemical industry. Most of them have been involved right through the service chain of chemicals from product conception, manufacturing, distribution, procurement, sales, servicing. They then left corporate life. And for the last two to three years, they managed down their debt using their salaries. They maxed out their credit card capabilities based on their corporate salaries. They left corporate life and started a business. In those instances, on reputation alone, and due to the fact that when they left, they had already secured orders for the formulations that they had built, they were able to raise some form of debt. But this idea that if you do not have that track record and you want to simply raise debt now, it's not going to happen. Uh, and, and that is the thing that differentiates the most successful business leaders in this country is they had a life before they went into business for themselves. Nobody went and started cold um, and built an empire. All of them had reputations. Um, so when Laurie Dipnard and Paul Harris and G.T. Ferreira got together um, with First Rand, they had reputations through the IDC and other corporate experiences. They got together, and because of their reputations, were able to have doors open to them. The stuff doesn't happen on a cold call, not every time anyway. Completely. The same applies to Herman Mashaba, who prior to starting Black Like Me had been involved in the industry, had built a reputation, had he found someone who believed in him, strong enough to leave and support the operations of the business. It, having that track record behind you really, really counts, Bruce, because there are very, very few people who, for example, appear as a youngster from nothing and nowhere and suddenly then find something and become and go somewhere with it. It, it seldom happens. So selling that story is, is a tough story to sell. And that's why I believe in, in organizations like Harambi, and I believe in the yes uh, program that's being rolled out at the moment. Work experience makes a massive difference in your ability to understand where you start and whether you can or can't raise debt. Pablo Fatidis, we're talking more about raising money, the way in which you do it, the options that are open to you. If you've got any more specific questions for Pablo, you give us a call on 011-8830702-021-446-0567 here on The Money Show. The Money Show. Small business. Pablo's looking at me if I'm stupid. Okay, that's fine. He's right. Uh, Pablo Fatidis from Auric Business Accelerator. Now, we've spoken about equity and, and we've spoken about debt. Adrian Gore owns, when I last checked, just under 10% of Discovery. He could have owned 100% of Discovery, but had he gone uh, to the first round group and said, I'd like to borrow money from you to grow Discovery, they would have lent him some cash at a high interest rate. And I can almost bet you that Discovery wouldn't be the giant that it is today. 
Instead, he gave away shares in the business in return uh, for having some, some capital and the expertise of people that he respected. Um, and today, Discovery is a multi-billion rand business, and as a result, the Gore family doesn't have to work for the next 10 generations. <laughs> um, uh, I'm sure they will, because they're responsible types. But uh, that's one example of where... Borrowing money at the wrong time can be massively prejudicial to the growth of your business versus having the gumption to give away a chunk of the equity, the shares in the business, for growth. Yeah, but accepting giving away shares for growth is, oh, it's a hard thing to do. You know, on an emotional level, it's very, very hard. Firstly, it's very hard on an emotional level because if you have some momentum behind you, if you have nothing behind you and it's a startup, Quite honestly, it's a, it's a lot easier. It's a lot easier because what are you truly giving away? You're giving away some equity around an idea, and you're going to get the funding you need in order to bring that idea to life. So the, in the early stages, in the early stages of your business, Bruce, giving away equity is a lot easier. In the later stages, it becomes very difficult because there are lots of fights around valuations. What's the business worth? The, it gets very, very contentious because the business owners typically see the, the business being valued at a far higher rate than obviously the investor would. And the pricing issues around that can become troublesome and they can certainly slow down the process. And in any event, if you are at a later stage, your business can afford to carry the debt. It can afford to carry the debt and the interest. So at a later stage, it becomes cheaper, in effect, to get debt funding on board. It also manages down your tax. And it improves all sorts of performance in the business itself. It also creates a very good discipline because if you're raising the money, you're typically going to be raising it against particular projects once you're established. And those projects have a start and an end. And you can define and encapsulate them and account for them very, very specifically. So, yeah, the, the, funding, the funding from an equity point of view is only going to be good if you are growing your business fast, fast enough to be in a situation where in raising debt and settling the interest and and principal payments is going to harm the growth rate. You get equity funding for growth. You don't get it to build out projects and to, uh, in the previous advert that I heard, innovate all sorts of stuff. And also there's a very good idea in terms of giving away equity to somebody in the sector with the experience and the, and the, the contacts and the stripes on their back already. If um, if they are going to act as in that mentorship role, be the chairman of your board or whatever the case might be, the chairperson of your board, um, somebody who's going to be there um, to give you some guidance as to avoiding the pitfalls that maybe they experienced as they started out. Yeah, you know, it's always interesting because a lot of the, the let's call it the venture capitalists, the angel funders, the private equity homes, those are the kinds of organizations that offer equity funding for a business. A lot of them put themselves out there as experts in particular fields. But the one thing I would look at if I was an entrepreneur looking to raise equity funding as a business owner in my own business, I'm looking to make a decision based on do I want simply the funding and I have my strategy and I'm confident with my strategy and I'm not looking for additional support or advice or direction or whatever the case may be versus do I want that additional intellectual capital brought to bear? And if I look at the two, I can expect to be charged a different level for entry into my business. If it's pure, pure funding and funding alone and nothing else is needed, it'll be cheaper to go that route. But however, if I'm looking for the additional expertise, that gets built in as well into the price. So you've got to, you've got to look really carefully. When it comes to borrowing money and providing security or providing collateral – 
how does one broach that particularly tricky aspect? Because you want to keep yourself and your business as separate as possible, but at some point you're going to have to stand surety for the business that you are looking for funding for. And, you know, the the disappointing thing is that the thing that you want the funding for, so let's say it's an asset, let's say it's vehicles, or let's say it's a new lathe or a CNC machine, whatever the case might be. What's a CNC machine? It's a a computer-driven lathe cutting machine. Thank you. So, in effect, what you do is you have a CAD system first, which are computer-aided designs, so you design your piece of engineering work that you want cut or designed or shaped, then you put it into the CNC machine. And the CNC machine takes all those blueprint diagrams and it controls the layer that's for very, very accurate engineering works. It's used in that instance. So in that instance, you you could source your funding to acquire that machine from a number of sources. The first place that I would always look to is going to be the vendor, the person supplying the machine. If the person supplying the machine looks at your business and says, okay, I can see good legs over here, I can see good potential, you know, the, the piece of machinery is going to cost... 2 million rand, I'll fund you over a period of time. It's normally expensive, though. You've got to watch out for that. Sure. Alternatively, you go to a bank. The bank's going to look at the machine and say, well, I'll fund you 60% for that machine. And the reason they won't fund the whole thing is because they're arguing in their head, well, what if the business doesn't work? I need, I need to go and pick up the machine up from the factory, load it onto the back of the bank's bucky, and then I might get – Offload it uh, somewhere. Offload it somewhere at 60% of what uh, the pri- price was that you paid for it. Yes. And if you put down a heftier deposit, you're going to get a slightly better rate. Um, the other alternatives is to look for a guarantor. And I've seen this in a number of events or a number of occasions. It's where you do have a kind of godfather, someone who – really believes in you, believes in the business and says, you know, I'll back that for you. Tell the bank that I will sign guarantee for you. So you're going to look at a whole range of, of let's call it collateral to back it. Then when it starts getting really thin on the edge, you know, the bank might turn around and say, okay, we'll lend you the money, but we're going to take session of your debtors. And that becomes very, very expensive, Bruce. And that's not even possible for most small businesses unless your debtors are impressive companies, mm. big brands. So it's going to be a mix of everything. But if you're going to go that route, you should always be putting money down yourself first because it will really take a lot of the pain out of the funding. And and that's only going to happen if you've got capital. And you're only likely to have capital if you've got a track record and a history and you've actually built up a little bit of money in your time because very few people are going to give you that startup capital, no matter how much they like you, and particularly if they want to carry on liking you um, into the future. Well, it was very interesting. This chemical business, the way they raised the funding, they took their track records in the first instance they had a demonstrable uh, history of having worked together before they became partners. They created formulations that they knew were missing in the marketplace. They contracted the manufacture of that to a third-party contractor uh, manufacturing environment. Once they started to deliver on those chemical formulations, the clients loved them, so they deepened their relationship with them. And only at that stage, when the clients started to scale up their orders, did they go to the bank and say, hey, look what we have on board. We have a securitized future. Lend us the money. And what did the bank do? Lend them the money. Lend them the money. It does happen. Pavlo Fatidis from Auric Business Accelerator.